Welcome to the Lover's Hole. You're with Mike. And with Ian. And we are rereading the Aubrey Matron books of Patrick O'Brien. Thanks for continuing to read through with us here. Ian, we're at Chapter 7 of The Letter of Mark. Please bring us up to speed. Oh, my pleasure. Last time, Mike Babington, soon to be a post-captain, had approved Jack Aubrey's plan to cut out the Diane. This was a really important mission for Jack, and true to Nathaniel Martin's interpretation of Aristotle's Poetica, the expedition was indeed a great success. Jack and his crew took the Diane. They also took two gunboats and two merchantmen, but Jack was badly wounded. So, Mike, this week we get to find out some more about Jack's wounds. We get to find out a little bit more about Babington and women, as if we didn't already know enough on that subject. We get to hear about sciatic stays and the relationship between butterflies and French intelligence agents. Meanwhile, Jack's reinstatement to the Navy list hangs in the balance and some friends come to his aid. But, Mike, the question is, is Jack going to let them help him out right what we we've seen in the past both jack and Stephen sometimes are a little bit tough about letting friends help them they are. <laughs> yeah. especially when they're sick and wounded so. yeah oh well you know we jump right back in as you say with jack's wounds jack is returning from the cutting out mission and Bondin is helping Jack up the stern ladder. Pullings is up above. He's ecstatic about the victory, but his happiness vanishes the second he sees Jack's deathly pale face. Now, Jack ignores it all, says he's fine, but he asks about this big gash in the larboard rail, and Pullings explains that a mortar had taken out the quarter gallery, but that there's no damage below that. And Jack's kind of happy that now they're going to be able to get quarter davits. You keep yeah. hearing about these davits recently. Ah, there's where we're coming to. But turning around to look at it some more, the pain overcomes him. And, you know, he kind of drops. So, you know, Bondin and Pullings and the others there, they help get Jack down into the Orlop where Stephen and Martin are busy tending to the wounded. Yeah. And we get this moment of description of the, the treatment, the surgery that Stephen and Martin carry out on Jack. And Mike, this took me back to some of the really gruesome moments of surgery, like the famous self-surgery piece that was in the movie as well. Um, Jack regains consciousness as he's on the operating table. There's a bloody canvas covering the chests that make the operating table. Jack tells Stephen and Martin that they're in the wrong place. He says, the pain is in my leg, not in my back. And Stephen assures him that the pain in the leg is referred pain from the great sciatic nerve. And we're going to come back to that later. Jack, it turns out, has got a pistol ball wedged between two vertebrae. He had thought that a horse had kicked him in the back, and we were kind of with him in the description when that happened. But Stephen says that it's a musket ball for sure. Once they get the ball out, Jack will be better really quickly. He thinks that they can get the ball out. Jack will recover within a week, but it's going to be very painful. And he fastens Jack down. He gets the leather chain to bite on. He says this is going to be short and intense pain. And since this is a book really all about first-person Jack so far, we get right with Jack as O'Brien describes it for us. He says, long or short, 
seemed to bear no relation to the agony that followed these words. It was all-embracing, and it distorted his body under the leather-covered chains in spite of his utmost fortitude, and he heard a great hoarse animal noise coming from his own throat on and on. Yet an end it did have at last, and there was Martin casting off the chains while Stephen took the gag from his mouth and gently mopped away the sweat that poured down his face. And Mike, I I was right there with Jack thinking, oh my gosh, (laughs) Root Canal ain't in it. Yeah, that's right. And as as the pain is still echoing for Jack, Stephen says, I have good news for you. He says, the ball came out clean. Jack's leg is no longer at risk. Stephen and Martin had dressed the leg wound. They'd dressed his right forearm. He had a deep gash in his thigh. He lost a great deal of blood and was once more kind of numb to all the pricking and sewing that's going on as they're closing up his wounds. And again, Mike, I'm... A little bit lightheaded as I'm reading this. (laughs) And Jack, is it curious to know what's the butcher's bill? What's been the casualty list for the surprise? And he discovers that there are no dead, but there are three serious abdominal wounds and more horse kicks and bites than were reasonable for a naval engagement. (laughs) Which is a a great joke. And uh, meanwhile, Jack drinks laudanum, and we get another little moment here to recall what's been happening to Stephen's laudanum. Jack says, hmm... Tastes like brandy to me. Right. Right. Ah, well, they've taken Jack away to rest. And a little bit later on in the middle watch, Stephen comes to find him, to bring him some more of this weak laudanum. And and Stephen's remembering that sometimes after the exhilaration of battle, Jack gets a little down in his spirit. So as he comes in, he tells Jack, you know, all the loss of blood, all the pain that you're still feeling, maybe making you feel a little low. But remember... You know, you've taken an enemy frigate of greater force, two gunboats with valuable cannon, and two fully laden enemy merchantmen. And, and he's thinking Jack's going to be down, but Jack is not down. And Jack says, dear Stephen. And uh, O'Brien tells us his teeth gleamed in the half darkness. So Jack is a big smiling guy despite all this here. Yeah. He says, I've been considering just that ever since you was kind enough to sew me up. And that's why I've not gone to sleep. But then we get this fascinating to me in this reflection. Jack says, but but dear Lord, Stephen, I really thought I'd lost the number of my mess, that bout. Mm. I scarcely noticed it at the time. And then all at once, there I was a dying, or so I supposed. And and I think Stephen reacts pretty quickly. He says, well, you know, he kind of assures him, no, 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 you're on the men. You've been wounded far worse than this. You've recovered quickly. You know, the gunshot was just trifling. And he predicts that Jack will be back in service. And then I think he catches himself and says, gentle service, as soon as the stitches are out. And it's, it's interesting that Jack is coming back to himself and his place in the world and his mortality. He's getting lots of these bigger perspective moments recently, isn't he? He's been getting alongside the idea that he's been struck from the Navy list. He's been learning how much he cares about his kid's opinion of him. And now he's able to take with some equanimity the fact that that might have been the end of his life. And and Mike, I I love the fact that what we learn about next is he goes on deck in an elbow chair, right? Because an elbow chair is the thing reserved for either visiting wives or admirals or convalescent officers. It's kind of, (laughs) it's the the comfy slippers of being on deck. (laughs) 
And it's the morning. It's the forenoon of the day after the action. Babington is super hyped about this. He says the victory matches the victory over the Cacafuego, because remember, Babington was a midshipman way back then. And he hopes, he says, that Jack isn't too badly hurt, hasn't paid too high. And Jack says, well, Stephen has called out this wound as being trifling. And Babington looks at the slung arm, heavily bandaged leg and waxen face and replies, God help us if he ever tells us we are seriously hurt. And I think Jack at this point says, Amen. Right. (laughs) Jack, meanwhile, sort of taking a bit of a turn in the conversation, asks Babington, have you considered the Diane? And Babington talks about the ship and Jack says, well, actually, I meant the women who are walking on your deck. Indeed, he has, says Babington. He points out a particularly handsome one in green that he's been watching through the telescope. And he he gets a little bit of a slap down from Jack Aubrey here. Jack says, William, you, you always was an infernal whoremonger. But with Jack's history with the first sex, there's no real moral superiority for Jack. And he says that actually my real intention is to suggest that William Babington sends the women and the wounded back into St. Martin under a flag of truce. Babington says that he'll ask Stephen which of the wounded to take back when he sees him. Jack says, well, that's fine, but Stephen's not going to be up until later. He describes Stephen's role in the action and in the aftermath here with really great, great liking. He says he fought like a hero in the cutting out and spent most of the rest of the night sewing up the Frenchman he had punctured. That's an interesting, right? Yeah. Yeah. He runs them through with his sword, then takes them back and then sews them up, right? Yeah. Ouch. Well, Babington asks, you know, exactly what Stephen had done for Jack. And and Jack says, you know, Brian writes, well, I'm ashamed to say that he took a pistol ball out of the small of my back. It must have been when I turned to hail for more hands. Thank God I did not. At the time... <laughs> I thought it was one of those vile screws that were capering about abaft the wheel. And and I need to point out here that screw is it's kind of an antiquated British term for a worn out horse. So he's talking about, exactly. yeah, he's saying, you know, I thought it was one of those horses running about, you know, and, and, and Babbing says, oh, sh- sir, surely a horse would never have fired off a pistol. <laughs> <laughs> Jack says, yet, yeah, and fired it was. And the doctor says it was lodged hard up against the sciatic nerve. Babington asks, what's a sciatic nerve? Jack says, I have no idea. (laughs) But once it had recovered from being, as I take it, stunned, and and once I had given the ball an unhandy twist, sending it closer still, well, the whole thing, I shall not attempt to describe how disagreeable it was until the doctor took it out. Babington shakes his head. He's looking grave. And after a while, he says, the Americans speak of a sciatic stay, you know, leading from the main to the foremast head. Jack says, so I recall, no doubt shipping it causes them the utmost agony. (laughs) (laughs) I'm reading this, uh, and I I don't know that my parsing has done it justice here. This sounds like one (laughs) big conversational Aubreyism that's jointly constructed between Babington and Jack here. It's great. And actually, Babington's joining in really, because he's, He's he's a bear of only medium sized brain, I would say. Is Babington? Right. We heard that called out in the a couple of chapters ago, and he's like, "Oh yeah, I've, I've, surely a horse would never have fired off a pistol." Yeah, and, and I love these two guys with you know all the seriousness about the sciatic nerve. What is that? No idea. No idea. <laughs> but then, I've, I've got a I've got a ship shipbuilding reference for you. Right, right. Oh, 
And uh, and we think the sciatic stay is a real thing, right? George Biddlecombe's book, The Art of Rigging, revised in 1848, um, describes a strong rope fixed from the main to the foremast head in merchant ships when unloading or loading. It serves to sustain a tackle which, travelling upon it, may be shifted over the fore or main hatchways as occasion requires. So there you go. Yeah, once again, my hat's off to O'Brien here. Who comes up with this stuff you know, without the internet? Oh. Well, that, that just about wraps up this little, this little gem of a conversation with William Babington. The next thing that he has to do is take care of the females. The Tartarus's boats indeed come to pick up the wounded, and they take the girls, and we learn one disagreeable old woman, understood to be a procuress, which is, which is fancy talk for a madam, um, and sail off to St. Martin under a flag of truce. Later, Stephen asks Jack about the possibility of going across to the Diane to see his prisoner who he'd stashed in the Diane's hold with the rest of the Diane's people the night before. And Jack asks Bonden to row Stephen across. Hmm. And then, Mike, all of a sudden, as, as they say in the movie trade, jump cut. <laughs> right, right. I mean, this, this was going to be the big intelligence coup for Stephen. He's off to go and interview the spy. And what, what, what? No, we're in London with Stephen and Sir Joseph Blaine. Oh, man. No doubt we're going to find out secondhand what happened with the spy, huh? Isn't it always the case, right? Absolutely. So we're in London. Stephen is bringing this big stack of files and documents to Sir Joseph Blaine. And Blaine congratulates Stephen on what he calls this famous victory that he's read about. Uh, now, he's read Jack's brief official report to the ministry, uh, which apparently was, you know, they, you know, was Jack's modest self here, but he's heard the roar of public applause, as he puts it. And he's wondering why Stephen looks so melancholy. And he says, you know, was the Diane all, you know, not all that I had kind of represented her to be. Um, and Stephen says, no, no, no. She was all that and more and that he's recovered all the papers, every, all the information about their contacts for the South American mission, how much everybody's been paid, uh, you know, which South American officials were involved. And he said, and I still got all these files that I have, you know, not yet decoded. So it looks like this incredible coup of intelligence here. And Sir Joseph says, well, my angelic doctor, what more could you ask. And, and O'Brien writes that Sir Joseph is caressing the files with a voluptuous hand and running quickly through the headings. And he says, here is all our work done for us. Their agents are all betrayed. Their schemes laid open. How can you look so sad? Ian, what's going on with Stephen here? Oh, poor Stephen. He's upset because his prisoner, this person known as the Red Admiral, Paul Segura, a French intelligence agent, not actually an admiral, but a bloody-minded man, we learn, had escaped dressed as an old woman when the women were being taken back to St. Martin. So, Babington. <laughs> Babington's famously unchoosy eye for women has failed to spot that one of them was a spy dressed up in a dress. All right. First of all, there's a, there's another little rhyme here back to the movie. We've had a couple of low key Russell Crowe alerts, and here's another one. We we did actually get somebody absconding from a ship in disguise right at the end. Spoiler alert: if you haven't seen Master and Commander: Far Side of the World, um, skip on by about twenty seconds. The captain goes aboard the surprise as a prisoner, masquerading as the surgeon, and then 
heads heads ashore aboard one of the prizes, and the the movie ends as the uh, as the crew and as Jack and as Stephen realize that this uh, this spy, this captain, rather has escaped. Anyhow, I, this is a really interesting reference. I don't think there's any uh, any real life Paul Segura, French intelligence agent, but the the name rang a bell with me. Um, in Graham Greene's novel Our Man in Havana, there's a Cuban spy slash torturer called Captain Segura. And I wonder if, especially him being called a bloody-minded man, I wonder if that character was in the back of O'Brien's mind as he came up with this name of Paul Segura. Um, Captain Segura was played by Ernie Kovach in the 1959 film, for all you Graham Greene cinephiles out there. Um, but that's it. There's, there's apparently no other real connection to somebody called Segura, who was the Red Admiral. Um, we have had a few references to Red Admiral elsewhere in the text, though, haven't we, Mike? We have. It's interesting because, you know, I was trying to do a little background research on that. And everything that was coming up for Red Admiral, except for just one or two little things, was all about this butterfly, this gorgeous hmm. butterfly. And sure enough, in HMS Surprise, we've got Sir Joseph sketching kind of the life cycle of this Red Admiral butterfly. And later, when we get to the Yellow Admiral, um, you know, Sir Joseph is going to welcome Stephen, who surprises him. And he says, you know, you're as welcome as the first Red Admiral in spring. So again, the butterfly. So clearly, uh, you know, O'Brien's well acquainted with the Red Admiral butterfly. But, you know, he might be toying with us a bit here, having some fun as a natural philosopher. But, you know, it does sound like a pretty cool, you know, intelligent agent name, code name here, Red Admiral here, in addition to being a beautiful butterfly. It does. It does. And it's, you know, a nice little uh, zoology hint for Stephen here in his conversation. Meanwhile, Stephen is getting a little bit more reassurance back from Sir Joseph Blaine. Blaine says, even as upsetting as Segura's escape may have been, Stephen is to realize that with all these notes and letters, they don't really need him. And Stephen thinks that maybe Segura might have told them whereabouts on the ship Diane they had concealed the money that they were taking to bribe South American officials. And Mike, we've we've heard before about brass boxes. We've heard before about secret compartments on ships. Um, Blaine assures him that the Diane will be bought into the service and the people who hide money for the Royal Navy will go through her with a fine tooth comb, says Blaine. And this is a little facepalm moment for Stephen. He says, ah, okay. I realize now that actually this is going to be fine. He realizes that this was always likely to be the case. Then he wonders aloud about this reference to Toothco. And Mike, this is one of those, I think it's one of those Britishisms that nobody ever stops to question. What do you mean by going through it with the with the Toothco? And Stephen wonders aloud, this Toothco now, this fine Toothco that the worthy shipwrights will be using, we often hear of it. It appears in daily speech. And yet, who has ever combed his teeth in this or any other day? May it not be, says Blaine, duh, that fine qualifies the tooth rather than the comb, that what is indeed intended is a comb with fine teeth, that is to say, with thin teeth set close together. Of course, of course, second face palm moment. This, this is not my most brilliant hour, said Stephen. I find I will confess that I am equally stupid about the present situation as far as it affects Aubrey. May I beg you to enlighten me. And Mike, we're getting another little signal here that all is not quite right aboard Stephen. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. Stephen just seems to be a little bit off at times here. He was in great form during the cutting out mission. I mean, you know, 
uh, great form in terms of, of going aboard, of, you know, pistoling and then, you know, running through the captain there. But um, in other things, you know, he's just off throwing his, you know, high quality prisoner down in the hole generally instead of carrying a board and slapping him in irons or something. You know, um, this thing with the fine tooth comb, little things, but perhaps it's Diana on his mind. Perhaps he's worrying about Jack. Perhaps it's the lack of sleep caused by his ever more diluted laudanum here. But, <laughs> you know, he does interestingly come back to his real concern here. Now that this escaped agent has been dealt with, he's, you know, this is what's really on his mind. He wants to know from Sir Joseph if Jack will now be restored to the Navy list. And that's him. And I almost wondered a little bit if it was kind of, you know, oh, gee, I'm a little dumb. So what's going to happen to Aubrey now? And I thought, well, maybe that was, you know, dumb like a fox. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it could be. But I, I, I think we're, we're getting a really strong contrast here in these, in these chapters between Jack, who is getting back into being resourceful and positive and back on his game and Stephen, who is not really those things. And I think, yeah, it's a, yeah. It's a good signal for us. Very true. Yeah. So Blaine says that if Jack were on the list, this victory would have resulted in a knighthood or a baronetcy, just like the Voxamheit would have if the government hadn't been so put out by Jack's father. And with this victory coming on top of the taking of the Spartan and all those prizes, the service and the public are singing Jack's praises. And Blaine shows Stephen a ballad that he'd bought on the street. The poet, he says, feels that Aubrey should be made a duke, or do strawberry leaves come down lower than dukes? I fancy they may descend as far as mere earls, but I'm not sure of that, said Stephen. And Mike, you, you've done some digging here. The, the strawberry leaf is part of the sort of armorial paraphernalia of earls and dukes, right? Yeah, you know, it... it... I'm surprised I don't know that, given the almost encyclopedic coverage that, you know, the, the uh, grocery store rag magazines have on the royalty. <laughs> you know? But but I, you know, I just was not up on these peerage rankings here. And I'm wondering, what is he talking about? Strawberry leaves and dukes and everything else. Debrett's guide to the hierarchy of titles in the peerage tells us that Duke is the highest of the five ranks of the peerage, standing above the ranks of Marquis, Earl, Viscount, and Baron. And Blaine is suggesting that the poet of this ballad thinks that Jack should be made a duke, and Maturin says, well, maybe it's an earl. The, the text of the ballad here helps us out. The ermine robe, the golden crown, and the leaves of strawberry O. Who's the tar we'll see in town? Sure, it is Captain Aubrey O. Who smote him low, who smote him high? Hey, the leaves of strawberry O. Who did the Frenchman in the eye? Sure, it was Captain Aubrey O. In Martin's port the other night. Hey, the leaves of strawberry O. Who woke them with a horrid fright? Who but Captain Aubrey O. So... What this tells us, I think, that the the, the balladeers are expecting high levels of uh, of peerage as a reward for Jack here. So, Mike, the the ermine robe and the golden crown are references to the um, the marks of rank of a peer in the United Kingdom. We have an ermine robe, a robe made of ermine fur. You'll still see them in the state opening of Parliament. The um, lords, the members of House of Lords, all wear a robe with an ermine. Uh, collar the golden crown actually means a coronet it's essentially a crown but you're not allowed to call it a crown because only the king or queen is allowed to have a crown and the coronet has marks that show the rank of its owner if the coronet has eight strawberry leaves then the bearer is a duke if 
it's four strawberry leaves and four silver balls that are known as pearls, then it's a marquis. If it's eight strawberry leaves and eight pearls, then it's an earl, 16 pearls for a viscount um, and a baron. And so it goes right the way down the uh, down the list of ranks of peerage. Now, to believe that Aubrey might have been catapulted to an earldom seems a little bit, a little bit far-fetched. Um, Lord Nelson was made a viscount in 1801, I think, for the Battle of the Nile. Uh, and wasn't made an earl until he was dead. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think Aubrey's going to have to do a bit better <laughs> to get an earldom. Um, he hasn't been knighted yet either, so I think the prospect in real life of earldom or dukedom or viscountcy or baronetcy for uh, for Jack Aubrey is a bit far-fetched. But it's great that the balladeers are saying it, and the question now is whether any of that sentiment can be mobilised, can be put to good use. Right. And, and, you know, and Stephen tells Sir Joseph that Jack's probably not even interested in becoming a peer, but he's interested in being restored to the list, as as O'Brien writes, with all his heart and soul. And Blaine wishes that he could say yes, but he suspects that this highly placed ally of Ray and Ledward that they've kind of been hypothesizing all along is probably still standing in Jack's way because you know, again, even though there's all this support, it's clearly, you know, we haven't kind of tipped the balance yet. However, Blaine says a number of people who were ill ill disposed towards restoring Jack to the list are now well disposed, including the first Lord, Lord Melville, some of the junior lords, respectable members. um, And as Blaine adds, the great force of public opinion and just as he's about to go on, the hour strikes on a clock there in Blaine's. And, and Blaine says, wait, wait, you know, we've got a table being held for us. Let's run down to dinner in the club here. Uh, Mike, this might be a really great moment to say, well, perhaps our listeners' bells have struck and perhaps it's time to step into the dining room for a boiled fowl with some oyster sauce. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back for break here. You heard Ian mention Patreon, where our supporters go to help us defray the cost of making lovers whole. And you know, tomorrow, when we're recording this, this is Wednesday. Tomorrow's Thursday, Thanksgiving Day in the U.S. And I just wanted to say that one of the things I'm thankful for this year, as I was last year, is for our listeners, all of you listeners around the world, and especially for our Patreon supporters. You know, we're looking forward to seeing all of our Patreon supporters at our annual holiday Zoom coming up in December. Uh, if you'd like to join us, some special guests, we hope, and other Lover's Hole supporters like yourself, please sign up at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Lover's Hole. And you too, this might be your only opportunity to be a debauch sloth or a testudo Aubrey this holiday season. It might. It It just might. Great. And um, it would be really great to have uh, plenty of our Patreon supporters joining us for a holiday chat in December there. Thank you. Thank you once again for to everybody for all your support. Um, support 
almost as valuable, almost as valuable as Jack is about to get from his circle of friends here. Now, Stephen and Blaine, they're on the way to get stuck into some boiled fowl and oyster sauce. And many of the members come up to them to congratulate Stephen on the victory. And they use this great phrase, give you joy, give you joy of your victory. Blaine asks Stephen to tell him some more details of the cutting out expedition. And just as they're getting into it, the Duke of Clarence, the future King George IV, interrupts them. Now, he's not the regent, he's the regent's brother, but he's somebody that we've known has a strong connection to Aubrey and to Maturin. And maybe this is a, a, just a little hint of where patronage might take them. The Duke has only a minute. He wishes, he says, that he'd been there for the mission and says it was the completest thing and asks Stephen to pass on the message to Aubrey that Aubrey should come and see him when he's in town and tell him all about it. I I love this little slightly snappish reply from Blaine. Blaine is super hungry and he was really kind of giving the evils to the Duke of Clarence here because he was really, really famished. He confesses that he might have had to commit les majesté, that is to say the offence of violating the dignity of a ruler, if the Duke had stayed a moment longer. And meanwhile, as Blaine is tucking in, Stephen tells the story of the cutting out using crusts of bread on the tablecloth. And Blaine says, well, I agree with the Duke. It was indeed the completest thing. Blaine asks after the dead and the injured. And Stephen's report is that the butcher's bill is is quite modest. And he goes on to give a description, though, of Jack's wounds. And Blaine is quite shocked by this. He says he didn't realize that Jack had been injured. And he says that, you know, the dispatch was quite sort of bald and unprepossessing in terms of all the details. Um, Blaine says, well, if he's lost so much blood, is he then pale? And Stephen says, well, yes, his face might be made of parchment. Blaine is happy and asks Stephen not to think him heartless. He says, but a pale hero is far more interesting than a red-faced one. As fans of the Twilight series and Robert Patterson might remember, a pale hero is indeed more interesting than a red-faced one. (laughs) Anyhow, he says, if Jack can be moved, this is the ideal time to bring some more decision-making people over to Jack's side. Stephen's worried that Jack might not do so well in a large group. He says he might be irritable, given all the restrictions that Stephen's put on his eating and drinking. And again, Mike, Stephen falls back into his very complacent um, boosting of the idea of laudanum. He says it might be proper to give Jack a dose before the meeting, even though it's not strictly medically necessary. The invalid's pettishness may set in early, says Stephen, and I quake in my boots when I think of Stephen dosing Jack with laudanum before a big dinner. Right, right. Well, you know, Stephen's worried that, you know, Jack seems recently to be a little bit more apt to just kind of fly off the handle. And, and we know that Jack's always kind of looking for slights since he's been off the Navy list here. And Stephen tells Blaine about the surprise being you know, taken into the royal yard to be repaired at the king's expense. Yeah, everybody's so delighted at this victory. And a Navy sloop came to escort her and some of the hands on the surprise who were worried about any time being close to the Navy and being spotted as deserters and in a hold off and hung are, are, you know, really doing their best to dissuade the sloop, uh, you know, to get rid of her. And, and Jack's below 
and he's writing his report and he hears the crews raise voices and he comes on deck and he's just furious and he starts screaming at them. You know, you goddamn swabs, lovers, not fit to man the Margate Hoy, never to be sailed with again. A hundred lashes all around. Damn their eyes. Damn their limbs. Sodomites, all of them. And, you know, he goes on and on and on and says, you know, they're supposed to, you know, bring these young gentlemen up with man ropes. Don't they know what's due to the king's coat? Um, and, you know, he's telling him he's going to cast them all on the beach within an hour. And Blaine's, I think, pretty taken aback. And he says, you know, were they very much distressed? And Stephen says, no, of course not. You know, they knew they had to look dumbfounded, amazed, shocked by their dismission. And they did so to the best of their ability. And in any event, he <laughs> forgave them and advised those who thought it might be better not to be seen in Plymouth to go ashore at once. So it's like, OK, you know. Just want you to know, Jack may fly off like that. Now, the guys that know him well think nothing of it, but he's worried that these people that Sir Joseph might be inviting may not take it quite as well as the surprise as crew did. <laughs> well, it's it's a great little bit of foreboding to make us anxious about this event that's coming up. But I also like the fact it's a little reminder of just how intimate the, the naval family is and how they all know each other and they can all yeah. kind of roll with it a little bit. So we've talked about Jack's wounds. Um, Blaine goes on to ask Stephen about the damage to the surprise. Stephen says it's not much the loss of the larboard privy and the washing area. And he can't remember, I love this, he can't remember quite what a davit is. So he says they're going to add a desirable crane there and just use the starboard privy. Uh, Now, this sounds like fitting out for Blaine. He says, "Are, are we thinking too quickly about you leaving for South America? And he's perhaps hoping that the repairs might detain them. Um, If Jack leaves now, he says, people will have moved on from his present glory and it won't matter how successful he is in South America. The two or three month journey back means that the glory would also be cold. And this is a really great moment of insight by Sir Joseph. He says, if Jack leaves now, he would never have the same favorable combination of circumstances again. He would have missed his tide. Indeed, says Stephen, this is a very grave consideration. All his naval life, he had heard these words, both in their literal and their figurative sense, and sometimes uttered with such concern that they might have referred to the ultimate, the unforgivable sin. And they had acquired a great, dark significance, like those used in spells or curses. And Stephen wraps this up by saying aloud, if he were to miss his tide, that would be very bad. Boy. I, you know, I, I love the way they bring this missing his tide, you know, literatively, figuratively, you know, tying them to the unforgivable sin, this dark significance like spells or curses. You know, it resonates with the luck and superstition that's run throughout the books here. But but it also kind of shines a light for me on those moments on, in our lives when we might miss our tide. And, and I can't help wondering whether Stephen you know, kind of reflecting upon this, wonders if Laura Fielding was one of those moments for him. Oh, yeah, very good. Ah, missing your tide. So we move then directly to Sir Joseph's dining room, rarely used, we hear, some days later. All the planning has been done for this meeting of friends and advocates and sponsors for Jack. Everything's beautifully laid out. The housekeeper, Mrs. Barlow, has been hard at work. Sir Joseph wants everything to be just right. And Mike, we, we, we've had a lot of Sir Joseph as you know insightful and benign and almost omniscient. 
and all powerful and in control of himself, but he's letting himself go a little bit here. The OCD is starting to take over. So Joseph wants everything to be just right. He's tweaking the knives and forks and where they are. He's going back into the details of the pudding. He knows how fond Jack and one of the other lords attending are of pudding. And as he sweats the details, Mrs. Barlow thinks, if this goes on another five minutes, she says, I shall throw the whole dinner out into the street. Turtle soup, lobsters, side dishes, pudding, and all. Uh, but Mike, uh, besides the joke about the pudding, there's something really nice and really quite profound going on here in this effort that's going in from Blaine. It really is, I think. In, you know, he's going this tremendous effort here. Blaine just so admires Jack and... You know, Jack, of course, is the particular friend of Blaine's particular friend, Stephen. And so Joseph really wants to get this right. So, again, getting just the right people um, so heavily invested in succeeding. You know, he set up the original mission against the Diane. He made sure that Jack got the job. And now, as you say, and he's just, you know, sweating the details of this clearly a lobbying dinner with the wounded hero at its center for these guys who perhaps are leaning in Jack's direction, but, you know, Blaine wants to really push him over the edge to, to get those couple of votes that are going to make the difference between Jack being restored and not. And it's it's really great that he's getting this help from Blaine. He, he couldn't get this from Stephen. This is help that uniquely Blaine is positioned to give, and it's a really, really great job that he's done choosing this group. Um, anyway, here they all are. The guests have arrived. They're being tended to by Sir Joseph's hired men, um, the butler announces Jack and Stephen as Dr. Maturin and Mr. Aubrey, and we learn that Jack comes in looking tall, broad-shouldered, thin, pale, and severe. And I think we're told there are two reasons why Jack is looking severe. One is that the severity is armor against the least hint of disrespect. We've known all the way back to post-captain that Jack can't abide the idea of an affront. It's against his code of honor. Um but part of it comes from the lateness of the hour because London fashionable dining hours are many hours in the day later than naval time. And Jack is, as who should say, tolerably sharp set. So Blaine gets Jack settled in with a leg rest and he's sitting next to a round pink man in a cherry colored coat whose face fairly radiated goodwill and friendliness. And this guy walks up and greets Jack. And we learn that it's Babington's uncle recently created a lord, Lord Mayrick, introducing himself. He gets congratulations from Jack, first of all, saying that he and William had just been talking about Lord Mayrick. And Mayrick says, no, 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 no. Being made a lord is not to be compared with cutting out a frigate. And he's really, really keen to pass on these congratulations to Jack. The other guests also greet Jack and they're talking over one another. And we get this wonderful atmosphere of just everybody wants to be with Jack and congratulate him. The text says they're Cordial, unfeigned congratulations would have satisfied a man with a far higher notion of his deserts than Aubrey. His reserve and severity, never natural to him until these last months, quite vanished. And between their admiration and Sir Joseph's sherry after his recent abstinence, um, contributed to an amiable glow spreading across Jack Aubrey's person here. Yeah, I, I love this. You know, and, and Merrick has Jack moved into the seat of honour at Blaine's right hand, um, so you know, Jack's at the seat of honor. Jack's been sniffing the entire time that all these people are agreeing him this turtle soup, which he loves. And I, I think, you know, Blaine knows that. And he's he's done this right. And, you know, there's this 
Jack kind of says, you know, that the, the ancients, the Greeks, everybody could talk about ambrosia, but, you know, these classicists didn't have turtle soup. And, and Blaine was kind of surprised, and America as well, like, no turtle soup? There aren't turtles in the in Mediterranean? No, no, no. Really good turtle soup. They come from the West Indies or Ascension Island. And this starts Merrick off with talking about how much he's always wanted to travel, but he gets seasick. So he's, as he says, traveled, fought, suffered, survived, and conquered through his nephew, William Babington. And then and yeah. Blaine's genius starts to come <laughs> to light here. So then Lord Merrick, the Lord here, starts recounting all of William's tales about Jack Aubrey. Starts with the defeat of the Cacafuego and you know goes on and on and on about these great victories. Now, some of the folks here who weigh great power, who aren't beholden to the ministry, not part of the opposition, Blaine's picked them well, are now hearing more than they ever knew about Jack's incredible record. And, you know, it's really getting their attention. And then the next thing you know, they're saying, "Uh, Jack, the bishop wants your attention down the table. And the bishop is up, you know, Jack, a glass of wine with you. And then the other gentlemen are, you know, you know, a glass of wine. You know, everybody is now the tide is rolling. Momentum's in our favor here. And, And Stephen's kind of watching the color come back into Jack's face and then, you know, maybe too much color drink after drink after drink. <laughs> and then, Oh God forbid, it's, you know, in Stephen's mind thinking Jack starts to tell an anecdote. Uh, you know, he's going back to the Bishop saying, Oh, you know, it reminds Uh-oh. me of a Bishop I knew in my youth here. And uh, Stephen's worried, you know, this is not where Jack's talent lies here. So, but Jack lands it beautifully. He's telling it. He has this pause Stephen can see how he completely could foul it up right here. But then he says about how the bishop in the story asked Parson West, this guy that Jack had known, have you many souls here in this little seaside village? And Parson West replies, no, my lord, only flounders, I am afraid. And so Stephen is (laughs) delighted. And Jack, quite frankly, is delighted that he's pulled it off. And now Jack's thinking, okay, I've done my job as a guest. Now I can just eat and be quiet and let them all chatter here. <laughs> oh, it's great. T- telling a dad joke to a bishop, it turns out, is that is the height of Jack's gentility <laughs> for the evening. It's not even as good a dad joke as the lesser of two weevils, but, you know, we'll let that slide. Right. <laughs> the guy's injured. And O'Brien does a really nice job of reinforcing for us what august company we're in. He gives us a little hint of the conversation that's going on around the table. At the other end of the table, people are complaining about the French ignorance of English titles and ways. We learned that Bonaparte's envoy, Andreossi, had attempted to enlist the Duchess of Devonshire as an agent with an offer of £10,000, and then her telling Fox, who was a leading Whig. And Mike, uh, we're not sure about the any, any real-life connection between Andreossi, who really was Napoleon's ambassador to Great Britain, and the real-life Duchess of Devonshire. But this Devonshire reference is interesting, isn't it? It is. This Georgina Cavendish, who, who was the Duchess of Devonshire, is you know, she was perhaps the first female political activist, uh, some people have said, you know, uh, uh, yeah. more than a century before suffrage kind of comes on the scene and everything. She is, and, and you know, here's one quote here, the first woman to make active and influential frontline appearances on the political scene. So she, and and this reference back to Fox, Fox was kind of a distant cousin of hers, and she is out very actively campaigning for him, so much so that, you know, she appears in broadsides and cartoons in trying to sort of 
put down all the work of this lady of Devonshire uh, doing that there. So, you know, really nice. And the Whigs, of course, at the time, anti-monarchy, advocating for liberty against tyranny here. And actually, you know, one of her converts was the Prince of Wales. So, you know, a friend of hers. So she brings him into the Whig party. No small uh, sort of thing here to bring the Prince of Wales, who although had his own issues with his father, the king, but still uh, another interesting Patrick O'Brien Easter egg about a very fascinating woman. Well done, Patrick O'Brien. Absolutely. And meanwhile, this this conversation about French ignorance turns to the presumed disdain that the French have for science. And they talk about the execution, the cutting off of Lavoisier's head and saying that the French Republic does not need men of science. Another of the guests asks how they can talk this way, given the French use of balloons to their military advantage when it turned out that the Royal Society had advised against them. And then the society members then get into a bit of a huffing contest, a bit of a debate. Well, it was decided by some poultry committee made mostly of, what was it, mathematicians and antiquaries or something. And they've got this nice little bit of committee royal society in argument going on. The society members debated who was for and who was against balloons. And Stephen listened to his neighbor who had been up in a balloon before the war. And Mike, we get this sudden turning from a petty political argument about the Royal Society. We get this really beautiful description from this dinner guest of a journey in a balloon. And the guest says, I retain that vivid sense of astonishment, awe, wonder and delight when after a slow, grey and anxious passage through mist, the balloon rose up into the sunlight. All below them and on every hand there were pure white mountains of cloud with billowing crests and pinnacles and above a vast sky of a darker, far darker, purer blue than he had ever seen on earth. A totally different world and one without any sound. The balloon rose faster in the sun. They could see their shadow on the sea of cloud. Faster and faster. Dear Lord, he said, I can see it now. How I wish I could describe it. That whole enormous jewel above, the extraordinary world below, and our fleeting trace upon it, the strangest feeling of intrusion. Yeah, it's, boy, this is another one of those O'Brien cinematic passages, like some of his sailing yeah. descriptions here, you know. And and I'm struck by, this is one I can relate to, and, and he absolutely captures the detail of this totally different world, especially this comment about one without sun. I, I remember after the terror of letting go of a perfectly good airplane that I had signed up to parachute out of to overcome a fear of heights, you know, after the wet newspaper in my brain sort of tore apart when I let go, I was all of a sudden in all of this amazing view and the absolute silence as you're suspended above the earth. Um, And, you know, O'Brien then, you know, adds his own kind of poetic, amazing insight into this when he says that extraordinary world below and our fleeting trace upon it, the strangest feeling of intrusion. You know, one of those great moments of perspective from O'Brien here, you know, we are just that little grain of sand on this vase beach of, of, yeah. of the universe here. And it, it is exactly lovely writing. We're still aware though. I think that the, the reference to balloons is one that has, Doom and a bit of foreboding for Stephen with it here. So I don't think Stephen's going to be 100% enjoying this reference to ballooning. Well, you know, Brian tells us the cloth was drawn 
And and Ian, just as a quick aside here, I, I suspect this is a yeah. fairly familiar thing to you, but for me, it wasn't. And I keep hearing it. The cloth is drawn, cloth is drawn, cloth is drawn, and all these period pieces. And I always wonder, are they pulling a curtain? What's going on? So I, I looked this up and it said, it means to clear the, the table after a meal, yeah. right? Is that... Yeah, exactly. So the the tablecloth, which is now all stained and you know beset with crumbs and whatever, the waiting staff take that away. So now the men are free to sit around and drink port and smoke cigars and tell stories. Nice. Well, you know, and and usually everybody's happy about that. I'm certainly happy about that and thinking about which port is going to be perfect for this Christmas. But Jack yeah. is dreading the coming toast, given how much the alcohol has already affected him. You know, he's he's down in his weight, the loss of blood, the you know abstinence Stevens had him on. But he needn't have worried because they merely toasted the king. And Lord Panmure, as they're, you know, they finish the toast to the king, says that that toast stuck in an extraordinary number of throats not so long ago. Huh. And there's, you know, it's interesting here. Uh, he goes into a little bit more about that. But Blaine seizes on that opportunity and says it would never stick in Jack's throat. And he kind of gets Jack's attention. And Jack says, oh, no, I have always followed Nelson's advice in that, as I have in everything else, as far as my powers have allowed me. I drink to the king with total conviction. So this, to me, is just a coup for Sir Joseph, has now signaled to the ministry through Lord Panmore here that Jack is yeah. certainly no radical like his father. He's totally supportive of the monarchy. And this is a time when, you know, everybody's weighing that, supportive of the monarchy or not supportive of this monarchy, or are we back to the Stuarts and, you know, pretenders to the throne or other claimants to the throne. So Jack's made this clear um, Sir Joseph has telegraphed this, and now they, you know, Sir Joseph suggests let's go take coffee in the dining room to allow more people to speak with Jack. I think he's now saying this is good. Jack's doing well. Let's get him out yeah. generally here. But over time, Stephen sees Jack in this dining room growing paler and paler and paler, and finally says, "You know, Sir Joseph, I got to take my patient and put him to bed." And right before they go, one of the Whitehall men, Mister Soames ask Jack if he can stop by and see him the next day. Mm. So I'm thinking of a couple of things here. I'm thinking, first of all, I'm really glad that Jack wasn't zoned out on Lord. Right. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I also really like the um, the little reference to Princess Augusta. And another, another great Easter egg about a significant woman from O'Brien. After the comment about toast sticking in their throats, somebody said, only yesterday, Princess Augusta told my wife that she never really believed in her rank until the Cardinal of York was dead. And it seems that he's referring to Princess Augusta Sophia of the UK, of Great Britain, the sixth child and second daughter of King George III and of Queen Charlotte. The line attributed to her, coming, coming as it turns out rather later in the real world timeline than in this timeline, in 1828, Augusta was heard to remark to a friend, I was ashamed to hear myself called Princess Augusta and never could persuade myself that I was so as long as any Stuart family were alive. But after the death of Cardinal York, which was in 1807, I felt myself to be really Princess Augusta. And Mike, I think this is because Princess Augusta would have been talking about the rights to the throne of the Stuart family, the Catholic Stuart family. The Cardinal York she's talking about is is known in shorthand as Henry Benedict Stuart, Cardinal Duke of York. His full name is Henry Benedict Thomas Edward Maria Clement Francis Xavier Stuart, Cardinal Duke of York, 
and there were some giveaways there. Males called Benedict, Clement, and Xavier, and having the surname Stuart abound to be Catholics, I'm afraid. Um, he was the fourth and final Jacobite heir to publicly claim the thrones of England, Scotland, and France, and Ireland. And after Charles's death in 1788, the papacy declined to recognise this guy, Henry, as the lawful ruler of England, Scotland, and Ireland, but people referred to him as the Cardinal Duke of York. And drinking a toast to the current British monarch would have stuck in the throat of people who thought that the Stuart line and not the Hanover line were the rightful kings. So really great bit of historical weaving in there and a really great Easter egg again about this lady, Princess Augusta Sophia. Yeah, and and brilliant on O'Brien's part that although she makes that comment, you know, later in 1828, this would have been (laughs) essentially right after his death. So it probably would have been something that maybe she said to an intimate friend here, but later gets repeated. I I love it, O'Brien. Always amazing here. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So the next day, you know, Jack's kind of forgotten a little bit about this. He's, you know, I think he's probably a little bit hungover. <laughs> all of this rich food, <laughs> all the wine. He's at the grapes. He's got this extreme itch of this leg wound. And he's just had this big disagreement, this row with Killick, who had turned out drunk the night before, forgotten a present for Hennage Dundish. And, and Soames shows up at the grapes as Jack's kind of in the midst of all this. And Soames says that he's having a hard time after some chit-chat opening his errand. You know, he, he doesn't really want to be getting into Jack's business, but he proceeds anyways. He says, you know, he's been asked to come talk to him. But but as he proceeds, things seem to go downhill quickly. Here's what Soames says. The fact of the matter, he says, is that I have been asked to have a few unofficial words with you on the possibility of a favourable outcome in the event of a proper solicitation for a free pardon. And it doesn't take very much thinking at all for Jack to play the straight bat with a, as we say, a straight bat. I do not understand you, sir. A pardon for what? Why, sir, for that unfortunate affair at the Guildhall to do with the stock exchange? Jack says, but surely, sir, you must be aware that I pleaded not guilty, that I said upon my honour that I was not guilty. Yes, sir, I remember it perfectly. Then says Jack, how in God's name am I to be forgiven for what I have not done? How can I conceivably solicit a free pardon when I am innocent? Jack had begun the interview in a state of strong, ill-defined, confused irritation. That was down to Killick. He was now white with anger, and he went on. Do not you see that if I ask for a pardon, I am giving myself the lie, proclaiming that there is something to be forgiven? And Somers tries to buttress his position here. He says, it's no more than a formality. It might almost be called a legal fiction, and it must affect the question of your eventual reinstatement. No, sir, said Jack, rising. I cannot see the matter as a formality at all. I am aware that neither you nor the gentleman who desired you to speak to me means any offence, but I must beg you to return them my compliments and state that I see the matter in a different light. And poor old Soames realises the interview is slipping away from him. He says, sir, will you not consider for a while and take advice? No, sir, says Jack. These are things that a man must decide for himself. I regret it extremely, says Soames. Must I then say that you will not entertain the suggestion? I am afraid you must, sir. 
End of chapter eight. Wow. Poor old Soames. Oh, poor old Soames. And a little bit of me saying poor old Jack. I mean, like, yeah. I feel just like Jack going into his trial. Like, no, no, no. This is how I see it. This is the way it's going to go. And Stephen and his lawyer and everybody say, no, no, no. You got to do this. Nah, I'm not doing that. I don't need to do that. And what's shocking is that all this chapter that we've really enjoyed building up and building up this great surge of you know, uh, advocacy and support for Jack. It turns out that it was all futile. If he's never going to accept a pardon, he's going to have to get something even better than a pardon. Right. And, oh, man. Uh, on the one hand, I think we can admire Jack for only wanting to accept what the world offers if it meets his high standards of honour and propriety. But I'm thinking, come on, Jack. Since we've been talking about the Catholics and the Stuarts, is Jack trying to be holier than the Pope himself? Right. Well, it's clearly not the outcome Sir Joseph and Stephen were looking for, you know, and it, it's not, I, I think, to your point, it's not the, the real outcome that Jack was looking for. We don't want to confuse ends no. and means. I, I, I get that. I get that. But, you know, you got to start to ask yourself now, is there any recovery here? Or, you know, are we back to Jack perhaps being restored to the list during the next coronation or the one after that here? Ah, yeah. Ah, so we might be all the way back to square one. But Mike, we've got loads of questions open here. Principal among them, is Jack going to be restored to the list or even make half a step right. towards being restored to the list? What's happening with Stephen and Diane and all of his anxious reveries about balloon flights? And we've been talking about this South American mission. Are, are we ever going to get to see the coast of South America? Right. I, I, you know, I think this is kind of the opening salvo in this, this South American mission. I've been waiting for this South American mission the whole time. Well, you know, I, I think there's only one way to find out. What do you say, sir, to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien next week? With all my heart. of Marquess, Earl, Viscount, and Baron. So Blaine oh, it's, it's is... Viscount. Oh, thank you. What did I say? Viscount? You did. Duke. Okay. Duke is the highest of the five ranks of peerage, standing above the ranks... Oh, now I'm going to slip on this. Marquess, is that it? Marquess. Marquess, thank you. I knew I was going to say that wrong. <laughs> Stephen and Blaine are in the club. They're on the way to pick up their oil... The oiled? <laughs> Boiled fowl. <laughs>